1: Welcome to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 266, and today we are talking about books being released on June 23rd and June 30th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia LZ Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello! Hello! That was really hard for me to say. That was, like, a lot of numbers. I was like, 23, 30, 20, Hike! Hike! Like, I, I like, had to pause for a second. I'm like, wait, 30 before 20? I'm so confused. Every time I read the intro, that is, like, the hardest part of the show for me. And that is the part of the show that I have written down exactly the same every time.
2: Well, and it could be a bit of a tongue twister,
1: right? It is! It's... Yeah. Once the Once the dates are like numerically higher than the year i'm lost i'm like i'm saying these out of order it's it's really <laughs> easy to trip me up <laughs> so here we are it's the end of june
2: how is it the end of it's we're halfway through the year
1: yeah wow. yeah <laughs> we are yeah it's almost my birthday it's gonna be my birthday soon that's exciting Ooh. i don't know if you've ever been on poshmark this is like a n- sort of new to me website experience. I have heard of the Poshmark.
2: Don't
0: do it.
1: <laughs> okay, I haven't.
2: I haven't visited
1: it. Oh my but. goodness! I lose like hours of sleep to looking at things on Poshmark because I'm like, oh, I want that, and I'll be like, oh, remember that really awesome concert T-shirt you had like fifteen years ago? I wonder if anybody's selling an old one. And it's like, yes, for five dollars. So yeah. <laughs> Um, but the, po- oh, yeah, the point of the story was that the other day I was on there and I was looking at the stuff people had just posted and there was this t-shirt for sale that said, um, it took me 44 years to be this fabulous. And I was like, oh, I- obviously I need that shirt that, because I'm turning 44 this year. <laughs> and it was like $45. I was like, oh, and I don't need it that much. What? Yeah, that's a lot. But you can like things. You can like like things and like watch them because it's kind of like eBay where like you can make an offer and all this stuff. And it was like she knew that I needed that shirt because 10 minutes later I got an email from the seller saying, like, would you like this shirt for $9? And I was like, oh, <gasps> well, yes, I would like this shirt for $9. $9. $9? Do- that is one-fifth of the original asking price. I was like, why did you even post it? It like literally had been like 10 minutes since she posted it. And she's like, mm, I'm going to take $9. I was like, all right. So okay, I'm going to have a really awesome shirt for uh, my birthday. I also bought a tuxedo t-shirt cuz I've always wanted one of those. Nice. I don't know why. And yeah, so Poshmark.
2: My new obsession has been um buying like really big resin poured earrings from maker so like i got monstera leaves that are a good like three to four inch in diameter earrings that are just like green and full of glitter because i'm wearing a face mask so i can't you wear my normal like normally i'm wearing like blue lipstick or green lipstick Mm -hmm. um so now i've just switched over to like just obscenely huge earrings
1: that's pretty great (laughs) Yeah, I think I saw them. I think I saw them on Instagram. They're pretty fabulous.
2: Yeah, you might have seen those. I got some yeah. rainbows today. They're like rainbow outlines with like rainbow glitter and like they're great. I'll post them on Instagram.
1: I was watching the video, I think, of how they made your earrings where they were like they did like a little video of them mixing glitter. And it was very, yeah. it was very satisfying. Watching it's them just mesmerizing. Yeah. <laughs> so shopping online, it's fun. But um, if you don't want to lose hours of your life, don't go to Poshmark. Um, but it's a good place, to, apparently, to sell things. So far, I've heard nothing but positive things from people about their experiences selling stuff on Poshmark and buying stuff. So, But we're going to talk about books now, um, which I will be reading in my new tuxedo t-shirt. Nice. <laughs> oh, oh, can I just tell you one more thing? Yes, please. I actually also, the other t-shirt that I bought is in Vanilla Ice. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles T-shirt concert <gasps> tour shirt. It's amazing.
2: Um, go ninja, go ninja, go. That's
1: exactly what it says on the back. Does it really? Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that.
2: I'm really jealous. That is so good. Thank you.
1: Okay, now we're gonna talk about books. <laughs> or I, no, first I lied. First thing, we're gonna hear from a sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balour, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria. She saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Imani Balour is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir The Cave by Amani Ballour and Rania Abu Zaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics in Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to
1: try it free. Okay, now we're going to talk about books. This book is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. And I am not kidding when I tell you that at Book Riot, we have been waiting, like, for weeks to be able to recommend this in the TBR subscriptions. Because, we know, we do the personalized recommendation service, and people are like, I'm looking to read this, and I'm looking for a gothic book, and I'm looking for a creepy book. And we're like, when is this book gonna be? Oh, we've all read it. We've all all loved it. And it's finally, finally, finally here. It's so good. It's Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia who wrote Untamed Shore, which I recommended earlier in the year, which is her first mystery. And she's written all kinds of other fabulous books, certain dark things. This one is for all you gothic suspense fans, all you weathering Heights lovers. This is everything that I wanted it to be. It's set in 1950 in Mexico. There is a young socialite named Noemi, and she is a party girl. She, her father is very wealthy. She's living the life, going to parties, flirting with boys, having a good time. And she's at this party one night and she gets called away by her father. And she's like, "Ugh, you know, like, what could this possibly be? And he tells her that he needs her to leave immediately and go to her cousin's house in the countryside. Her cousin Catalina is a few years older than her. Uh, They were very close. She recently married a very dashing young man. Uh, His family is English. They happen to live in Mexico, but his family is English. His name is Virgil, uh, and he's taken Catalina away to his family home, and she hasn't really heard from her much since then. And her Noemi's father tells her that he received a very troubling letter from Catalina a few weeks ago that was saying, like, It's awful here. There are things in the walls that are talking to me, and I'm so scared, and, like, just, he's like, what? So, you know, being 1950, uh, he writes to her husband instead and says, you know, your wife sent me this weird letter, you know, what does it mean? What's going on? And Virgil writes back and says, oh, it's nothing, you know, she's been ill, and I don't know what this is, and everything is fine. But Noemi's father is still like, well, maybe, you know, Catalina is lonely, and she misses her friend, and or something is going on. I don't know. I don't really like how this young man is responding to me. So, he tells Noemi that if she goes to check on Catalina, he will let her enroll in the graduate school that she wants to go to because at this point it's 1915 in Mexico, women aren't even allowed to vote and they're like he thinks it's a waste of time for her to be going to school, which is what she desperately wants to do. So, she agrees to go and visit. And she travels to the gloomy mansion It's called High House. It's up on a hill in the middle of nowhere. This house is owned by Howard Doyle. He was a mogul who came over from England and started waving money around and exploiting the people of the village. He's also into eugenics. He's pretty gross. And now he is old and frail and needs uh, taken care of. And so his daughter Florence watches out for him and her son Francis helps her sort of maintain the house. Florence, when Noemi gets there, tells her, like, all these rules of the house. It's this big, giant, gothic mansion. You can't open the curtains. She can't smoke in the house. She can't use the hot water. She can't, like, the house is, like, moldy and, like, falling apart in places. The greenhouse has been overrun and she's pretty miserable and she gets to see Catalina. Florence is very, like, Worried about her seeing her. She's like, No, no, she needs her sleep. You know, you can't visit her. She's like, I've traveled all this way. I want to see her when I get here. And so she lets her see her for a few moments. And and she, uh, Florence tells Noemi that Catalina has tuberculosis. But when she sees her, she's like, She had seen people who had had tu- tuberculosis before. And she doesn't think that Catalina has it. And Catalina, you know, she says, Like, you know, Noemi says to her, what, what were you talking about in this letter? Like, what is going on? And she's like, Oh, I don't even remember. I was just, you know, sick and being silly and it, everything is fine. But Noemi is suspicious because she does not think that she has tuberculosis. And she's worried about some of the things that she's seeing there. So she goes to get a second opinion. She travels to the village and she talks to a doctor who is not treating Catalina. And he says, yeah, no, none of these symptoms sound like tuberculosis. And so now Noemi is very suspicious. And she's also butting heads with Florence because she smokes in her room because Noemi smokes all the time. And she's not supposed to smoke in her room. And Virgil the very handsome husband of Catalina sort of rubs her the wrong way and then there's the creepy old man and on top of everything else there's this cemetery just full of bodies behind the house and lots of them have the same date of death on them and they tell her like oh there was this big illness that happened and and took out a bunch of workers in the mine and then again another time and... She gets really weird feelings while she's in the cemetery and she gets really weird feelings while she's in the house and while she's sleeping and she starts having these, like, really, like, gross dreams but also sometimes, like, some really sexy dreams. And she thinks, like, she's hearing voices and the wallpaper is moving. It's, like, it's not super scary. Like, it's not a horror novel. It's just kind of creepy. Like, I don't think you'd be really scared if you read this. But, you know, Noemi is really great. She's like this heroine who takes matters into her own hands because she doesn't take anyone's word you know has to know everything for herself and she's now like determined to get Catalina and herself out of this house before whatever is in the house gets to them and there's also like this terrible like family secret tragedy that took place and she hears about you know and so she's determined to get her out of the house but will the house let her leave is the question I'm still going on and on about this book I love this book so much Um, It's just such a creepy page, Charter. I will stop talking about it now. It is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Excellent. I looked at my list
2: of books for today's show, and I've actually been reading a lot of fiction, which is different for me. I think reality is a little too real right now, so I've been reading a lot of fiction. So my first book is The Girl in the Witch's Garden by Erin Bowman. This is a middle grade fantasy, and it was an absolute delight. I didn't know what to expect when I started the book because I admit sometimes I just pick up a book and start reading without looking at the synopsis. I like living on the edge. So I do want to give a content warning that there is a parent with terminal cancer and a parent's death. So the book starts by telling us about Mallory Estate, a mansion in New England, maybe. And adults think the home is regal and charming, but local kids are sure that there's a witch who lives there. And if you were a kid hanging around there and made eye contact with the witch, that she'd put a spell on you and lure you in to trap you there. Our protagonist is 12-year-old Piper Peavy, and she had heard the stories because the person who lives at Mallory Estate is her maternal grandmother. And she would know if her own grandmother was a witch. So Piper's parents divorced when she was very young and she doesn't have a good or any relationship at all with her mother. And she has a small hope that will change because she's dropped off at Mallory Estate to stay with her grandmother and her mother lives there. And she's going to stay there for the summer while her dad, who has cancer, goes through another round of chemotherapy. We learned that Piper's mom left when she was young so that she could go to Mallory Estate and study a series of metaphysical anomalies. And I'm a reader. You're a reader. We know this means magic. But Piper doesn't believe in magic. So Piper gets dropped off at Mallory Estate and a kid answers the door and that's really unexpected and she's like, what the heck is another kid doing here? And then she learns that there are multiple kids there and her mom and grandmother are fostering them. So that's really weird. The thing about Mallory Estate is that there's a huge decrepit garden in the back. Empty fountains, broken statues, dead plants. And one of the kids, Julius, reveals to Piper that one, magic is real. Two, the garden is hiding an elixir of mortality. And three, the kids each have an affinity, which is basically like a single magic power that they can perform. So they were promised to be adopted if they could figure out the puzzle of the garden. On top of all this, Piper gets to see her mom for the first time in seven years, and her mom is really mean. And also her grandmother is mysteriously missing. And... To throw in another thing, there's a white Persian cat that is also a spy. So this book has so many things that I love. Magic kids, kids who are brave, multiple puzzles to solve, and a garden on an expansive estate. It has themes of trust and friendship and also learning to be okay with death. I really enjoyed this book. It's The Girl in the Witch's Garden by Erin Bowman.
1: That's kind of like a nice compliment to... Mexican Gothic, you know, like overgrown estates, creepy (laughs) stuff, some magic. I think it went really well. I don't know if you planned that, but... I did not, yeah. I'm going to go in a totally different direction now. I'm very excited about this book, and they just announced that it's going to be a series on Hulu. I don't know if it's going to be a documentary or retelling? What is the word I want? I don't know. Let's talk about the book. It's Action Park, Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park by Andy Mulvehill with Jake Rawson. I think I mentioned that I was reading this a few months ago and now it's here. Andy Mulvehill is one of six children uh, of Gene Mulvehill who viewed his children as sort of stunt doubles and child laborers. Uh, he was a larger-than-life huckster, basically, uh, always with a scheme, always looking to make a buck. And he owned a Vermont ski slope and then a second Vermont ski slope when the first one went bankrupt and he bought it from them. And then Gene Mulville decided to open an amusement park in New Jersey in 1976. He bought the most ridiculous, outlandish home for all his kids Like, when they talk about, like, how they had their own, like, go-kart track and a pool and tennis courts. Like, it's crazy. And then, like, an hour, it was about an hour's drive from the Action Park, which was also called Traction Park, Class Action Park, and Accident Park because of everything that happened at this place. Basically, at this point, it's 1976. We are, you know, a land of lawn darts and, you know... They still had, like, tar on the playgrounds at this point. No seatbelts. No (laughs) seatbelts, you know. And uh, so his father's theory was that people didn't want rules. They didn't want regulations. They wanted to just go and have fun and do whatever they wanted. And so he had this amusement park with these banana, like, banana pants rides that were dangerous. People were injured hourly at this park. People died at this park, but like the attendant people like attending the park saw this like as a badge of honor that you went to the action park and you survived, basically. The the things that he invented. At the beginning of the book, Andy Mulville is talking about how his father invented this like loop-de-loop thing that was a really, 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 really long slide with like this crazy loop at the end, like a bendy straw. And they had tested it with a, a dummy. Like, they had made a dummy out of, like, clothing and, like, stuffed it with stuff. And the dummy went through it. Successfully did the loop at the end. However, when it came out, it was missing its head. And so his father's like, Andy, you try it. And, like, they put him in, like, all this padding and stuff. And he wants to impress his dad. So he, like, does it. And it's just like, don't, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. But, like, you know, he wants to impress his dad. And, like, just, like, crazy rides like that. And So his job, when he got older, was to ride a motorbike around, basically, from one injured person to another, like, making sure... This is, like, the time before lawsuits, you know, where everybody was suing about everything all the time. Uh, and, And some of the things that happened to these people, like, they should have been suing, you know? But people would go... And they would get on a slide or a swing, and sometimes they would, like, get thrown off into the woods, or they would get thrown off into the dirt. And he said everybody was running around with, like, scraped knees and elbows, and they were just having a great time. And it gives me anxiety just, like, thinking about reading it. But it's so interesting, like, when you think about, you know, everything going on now and, like, how different things were back then. And so it's, like, the story of the rise and fall of the park and, like, his father's glory and how it came crashing down. He later had legal troubles because he tried to swindle some more people. It's really fascinating. I myself am terrified of roller coasters, so it stressed me out the whole time, but like in a good way. But forgive me if I've told everyone this story before, but I actually grew up across the street from York's Wild Kingdom in Maine, which is a a zoo and amusement park that still exists to this day. And I literally would wake up, In the morning, if you woke up early enough at like five o'clock in the morning, you could hear lions roaring in Maine. And then at night you would hear the screams of people on the roller coaster. It was a very strange experience that I didn't really appreciate until recently that like this is how I lived my life. But, you know, I, I myself did not go there because I was terrified of roller coasters. And in fact, true story, the one time that someone finally convinced me to go on a roller coaster, it broke down while we were on it and we were left hanging upside down. And the lady behind us was like, "It's not supposed to do this." And I was like, "You think?" Uh, and I was just terrified the whole time. And so I've never gone on a roller coaster since then. But this was so much fun. This because like this is like my time. Like these are this is like a lot of this takes place in the 1980s. Which, if you remember me saying earlier, I was you know around then. So I really enjoyed reading about it, and I look forward to watching the series, whether it's you know a documentary or you know fictionalized version of it. It is Action Park. Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park by Andy Mulhill with Jake Rosson.
2: That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh, I'm adding it to my TBR. Yeah. <laughs> so for my next book, I have Forest of Souls by Laurie M. Lee. Okay, so you know how I just said I sometimes pick up a book and start reading without looking at the synopsis? Well, apparently I didn't even look super closely at the cover of this one because then I would have realized that it heavily involves giant spiders. So there's my content warning if you, like me, are scared of spiders. That being said, I really liked this book. It's the first in a series. It begins with a glossary because this is fantasy with a capital F. Some really rich world building that gets a bit complicated and I definitely had to refer to the glossary a few times and I was grateful that it was there. So we start with we have the continent of Thee. There are three kingdoms, Eve Wynne, where the humans are. Nuvalin Empire, a.k.a. the Empire, and that's where the shamans are, and there's more on them in the bit. And then the third kingdom, which is Kazahin, which is populated by the Shadow Blessed. So we have humans, Shadow Blessed, and shamans, and they do not like each other. And running down the center of the continent is the Deadwood, a super freaky wood possessed by vengeful souls controlled by a powerful shaman named Ronan. You know, no big deal, right? So our narrator and protagonist is a human, Saoirse Ashwin, who is 17, I think, and basically a soldier in training and secretly training to be like training and competing to be the queen's shadow, a.k.a. the master spy and assassin. We learn that Saoirse was an orphan raised by monks before going into military training. We also learn that the queen considers all shamans outlaws and does not allow them an one unless they are in prison or getting executed. Shamans each have a particular craft, like a talent. They can work with either fire, earth, wind, water, or light in different ways. And you can tell like, what kind of craft they are by the intense, bright color of their eyes. And they also have familiars who help them work their magic. So while Sersha and her best friend and fellow military trainee named Sango are doing a routine assignment with some younger recruits and others, Sersha intercepts a message – She basically pickpockets from a fellow trainee named Jonia, who she absolutely hates, and she learns that he is her secret competitor to become the queen's shadow, and he has a message in their teacher's handwriting to go meet someone at a tea house. So Saoirse and Sango sneak away to try to beat him there, and they find out that it was an ambush. And a huge fight ensues, and there were shamans at the tea house, and they attacked. Sango gets stabbed, and then Saoirse just passes out. She wakes up at a stream, and Sango is strangely alive, even though Saoirse was sure she saw her get stabbed and die. When Saoirse goes to wash her face in the stream, she finds that her eyes have changed color into that of a shaman, and she thought she was human all this time. And she knows very little of shamanic powers and realized that when she blacked out, she must have done something to save Sango's life. So while they're out deliberating, because she's shaman now, she can't go back into like the human kingdom, they get caught by the prince, who is captain of the Queen's Guard. He first brings them to prison, but then plans change, and Ronan summons them to go through the Deadwood and see him at his home, Spinner's End, because yes, his familiar is a giant spider, and no, I do not like it, but this was such an amazing book to lose myself in. I'm so happy that it's the first in a series, and I'm really looking forward to more. The title is Forest of Souls by Laurie M. Lee.
1: All right! My next pick, they kind of dropped this on us a few months ago as a surprise that it was coming and everyone is really excited and it's really fun. It is Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan. Kevin Kwan is the author of the Crazy Rich Asian series, which I just watched the movie again recently and it's still fabulous. And this is like jewel-encrusted candy. Don't eat jewels, though. That's bad. Don't tell anyone I told you to eat jewels. But, I mean, it's just like colorful and sparkly and fun first of all it taught me so much about capri i knew nothing about the island of capri like nothing apparently it's like this super super fancy place uh they have a lizard that is only seen there like there's a particular shade of lizard that is only seen on this one rock near this island it's and it's like gorgeous and it's Very, 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 very wealthy, but also has, like, a very troubled past, which I looked up. I fell into, like, a rabbit hole reading about Capri for, like, an hour one day. It's amazing. So at the beginning of this book, there is a young woman named Lucy Churchill, and she is attending, like, this fabulously fancy, expensive wedding. Like, expensive, like, more than most of us will make in our lifetimes. Expensive wedding. And she's there with her older cousin, Charlotte, who is chaperoning her because she's young. Uh, Charlotte's kind of a drag uh, and kind of bossy and kind of snobby. But, you know, she's with her and they are meeting the guests and they're staying in this hotel. And they're talking about how, like, they're kind of disappointed in their room. And this mother and her son overhear them, the Zows and... They insist that Lucy and Charlotte switch rooms with them. And, like, just insist. And insist and insist and insist. They're like, the room is all paid for. Like, take our room. We just And now, like, in their culture, they can't really say no. But then once they agree to change the room, then, like, the, the mother won't stop talking about, like, how great she was to have switched rooms with them. It's driving them, them batty. And she, Lucy also can't stand the son, the Zhao George Zhao. He's very handsome, but you know she's just really irritated with everything that's happening. And she's irritated with his money. And she's irritated that she's attracted to him. And she's irritated that she finds herself making out with him later. Uh, and she's just so irritated by everything. And Charlotte is just so disappointed that, that Lucy is interested in George. Uh, she makes Lucy feel really bad about her heritage. Um, Lucy's mother is an American-born Chinese woman. And her father is from New York. And... She tries to make her feel bad about her Asian heritage, and it's sort of like this inter- this internalized race, this, like racism and prejudice that Lucy has. Like she tries to hide her Asian side from, her, you know, she what she calls her WASP friends and her WASP family. Um, and so, this fabulous wedding on Capri. Years later, they are now in the Hamptons, as people with money are, and Lucy has a new fiance or are we, should i say new fiance? I don't know. Like he she didn't have one before, but like let's just say he's like a new he's just shown up. They've just gotten engaged and George shows up at this party and now she's mad because she's attracted to him all over again. It's just this is a good book for summer. There was so much brand name dropping that I sure went right over my head, but that was really fun and like I said the island is really fun and I don't I feel I always feel bad when I put things like this like I, I cuz I don't want to discourage people from reading it but like if you don't expect too much from this book you won't be disappointed. Like if you're expecting like a new crazy rich Asians, I think you will be disappointed. But this one is a great beach read. It's fun. It's more of, you know, the crazy rich Asians kind of stories with, you know, wild parties and fabulous places and lots of money. So it is sex and vanity. By Kevin Kwan. And now, I almost forgot what we were doing. I'm like, oh, I talked about a book. What am I going to do now? Have a drink? Look at some more books? No, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Okay, now that I've pulled it together, (laughs) you want to tell us about your next pick?
2: I would love to tell us about the next pick. So my next pick is Take a Hint, Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert. Full disclosure, I did not read the previous related book, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, but this one, Take a Hint, Danny Brown, is totally great as a standalone and you don't have to read the first one. Although I loved this book so much that I am now going to go back and read the first one. Quick content warning for descriptions of anxiety and panic attacks. As I've mentioned before, I'm still really new to the romance genre. So I had no expectations for this book aside from the requisite happily ever after. And I really, really adored this book. Yes, the romance is lovely, the sex is super steamy, and I feel like if I keep reading romance, I'm going to have to have like a steaminess or a spiciness scale to rate sex scenes or something. But what I did not expect was how outrageously funny this book was. The primary romance trope in this book is fake dating, and you know, I never tagged myself as a fake dating girl, but it is just so good. Like, I'm usually more of an enemies-to-lovers situation, but this book was uh, so good. So one of our protagonists, Danny Brown, is a PhD candidate who doesn't seem to suffer any fools. She has super short, hot pink hair and just broke up with her girlfriend who teaches in the same department. The ex-girlfriend did the thing that Danny avoids at all costs, which is to catch feelings. Like she started having feelings for Danny. The other protagonist is Zafir Ansari and he is the very fit security guard who works in the same building that Danny teaches in. Unbeknownst to Danny, Zafir is a former rugby player and he began a nonprofit teaching kids both rugby and how to talk about their feelings because Zafir has pretty serious anxiety and panic attacks. Also, Zafir is an absolutely hopeless romantic. In the prologue, Danny prays to the goddess Ocean for a no strings attach sex buddy. And so flash forward, the two of them, Danny and Zephyr, flirt daily. Danny brings some coffee on her way from the cafe to her office. Zaf brings Danny a protein bar every morning because he knows she works a lot and never makes time to eat properly. So Danny teaches her first class of the day and after class, Danny has a really awkward interaction with her ex and then she like just gets in the elevator which freezes to a stop while she's in it, because there's a fire drill she didn't know about. Meanwhile, Zafir is in his element, making sure everyone is out of the building. He's been planning this fire drill forever. He's checking off his boxes. Everyone is outside, except he notices Danny Brown is not outside. She never made it outside. So Zaf goes back in, hears her yelling from the elevator, Prize open the doors and carries her out firefighter style, and the lust between the two of them is palpable, even to the dozens of students who are now taking photos and videos of them. And Zaf and Danny end up trending on social media. And it actually gets a bunch of donations for his nonprofit. So they agree to fake date for a month, you know, for marketing purposes. And remember, Zafir is the personification of feelings. He is 100% feelings. Danny is 100% anti-feelings. And the tension is so real. If you need something lovely and fun and sexy, I highly recommend Take a Hint, Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert.
1: Okay, my last pick is not very sexy. I'm sorry. Sorry to, like, spoil the momentum we had going there. But it is really fun and awesome. It is The Angel of Crows by Katherine Addison. Katherine Addison is the author of one of the most wonderful fantasy novels called The Goblin Emperor, which I still feel like so many people have not heard of and need to read immediately. And it is going to have a sequel. This is not it. So if you are looking for the sequel to The Goblin Emperor, I'm very sorry to say that this is not a sequel. But, you know, Catherine Addison is not our puppet. She can do what she wants. And she has decided instead to release an angel, vampire, werewolf, Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper steampunk novel. Because, yes, all of those things exist in one book. And it's kind of awesome. It's set in an alternate 1880s Victorian London it's wildly ambitious. I mean, we've got like, you know, creatures and Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Uh in this book, it's basically like sort of Sherlock fan fiction with angels and werewolves and vampires and Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's cuz there's a retelling of some of of Sherlock's stories. Not the later ones though. We don't want we don't want Catherine Addison to get sued for, you know, having Sherlock be decent to women or anything. Uh which is, you know, a reference to what's going on right now with the Doyle estate. But These are like a few of the early stories, and it's about Crow, who is a brilliant detective and also an angel, sort of. Crow has no affiliation one way or the other, whether he's good or evil. Nobody really knows what to do with him, so everyone is kind of afraid of him. His flatmate is Dr. Doyle, who is a wounded war doctor. Uh, and they kind of work together. Crow's obsession is Jack the Ripper, finding out who Jack the Ripper is. And and in this world, humans coexist uh, with vampires and werewolves. It's kind of just been like, okay, well, this is what's going to happen now. We're all going to get along. But, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. This, You know, it's just fun. It kind of feels like Catherine Addison is like, I need to write the sequel to the Goblin Emperor. But before I do that, I want to get down every single idea that I have about everything else into one book, and it's going to be fun. And she did it. You know, and I'm always down for retellings of Jack the Ripper stories, you know, like, you know, I'd be happy for like a Sesame Street Jack the Ripper mashup, or, you know, Rick and Morty Jack the Ripper mashup, like whatever. I'm always for Jack the Ripper and and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, So this is fun, and it is The Angel of Crows by Katherine Addison. Okay, so Patricia, I am I'm just so full of words today. Maybe because I didn't have any last week, so I'm like doubling up. Um, or I feel like I'm talking I don't know, I'm having a good time. Uh, so you are going to finish up. You have a couple more books you're going to tell us about. I have a couple. I couldn't narrow it
2: down to four, so I have five to talk about today. Okay, take it away. The next book I want to talk about is Everything is an Emergency, an OCD story and words and pictures by Jason Adam Katzenstein. So OCD is a mental illness that's been skewed a lot of ways by media and the term OCD itself gets used flippantly like it's a cute funny thing. And full disclosure, I have OCD and I take meds for my OCD. So I'm usually super skeptical and critical about its portrayal in books and other media. And this book, everything Is an Emergency is a memoir, and while the variety of compulsions a person can have is infinite, I identified with this representation so much. The author is a New Yorker cartoonist, and the illustrations really add to the story. If it's not clear, this whole book is about having OCD, mostly before being diagnosed and treated, so it can be really triggering for those of us who have it. It actually jogged a few memories of mine from childhood that I had completely forgotten. And looking back, I was like, oh, yeah, wow, I've been dealing with this my whole life. And I just thought that I was a weird or imaginative child. But people don't understand that having OCD can mean you lay awake for hours with thoughts of horrible things that you cannot control happening to people you love. And sometimes to stop the obsessive thinking you connect compulsions, which are sometimes like elaborate rituals to perform to stop these thoughts so that you could get on with your day or sleep or do whatever you're trying to do in your life. So when your brain feels out of control, you grasp at anything that makes you feel this sense of control. And the author does an amazing job of portraying his experience of having OCD and how it affects him, and how it affects his relationship with both his parents and romantic partners, as well as friends. I'm really glad I read this book. I'm really glad this book exists. Again, it's Everything is an Emergency, an OCD Story in Words and Pictures by Jason Adam Katzenstein. And for my final book that I have been waiting forever to tell you about, It is The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho, and Zen Cho wrote uh, Sorcerer to the Crown, which I also really love. So at the end of 2019, I named this book as one of the books coming out in 2020 that I was super excited about, and folks, it does not disappoint. I've mentioned I grew up watching martial arts films with my grandmother. I'd seen hundreds by the time I was a teenager, dubbed, subtitles, you name it. While this book isn't completely in the wuxia genre, it definitely seems like a nod to it. And this novella was an absolute delight. It has fighting. It has surprises. It has found family. And the humor is so good. I laughed out loud so many times when I was reading this that my wife was like, hurry up and finish it so that I could read it. And also, this book is full of queer characters. I think somewhere I heard it described as a bandit walks into a coffeehouse and then it's all downhill from there. So yes, it starts with a bandit walking into a coffeehouse. Of course, he sees a wanted poster with an awful rendition of his gang on it, and he just sits and orders a drink. Suddenly, he hears a customer nearby yelling at the server, claiming she was trying to curse him. The bandit tries to intervene without violence, and it does not go as planned. There's a fight. I think his drink gets cold. Meanwhile, a second bandit walks in and recognizes the waitress as a devotee of the Order of the Pure Moon reflected in water. She notes that because of his friend's intervention, she will surely be losing her job. So bandit number two gives her some money to make up for this. So later that night, the waitress, who is actually a nun... Uh, finds the bandits at their camp about, there's about five or six men. She tells them that she will be traveling with them from now on since the reason she lost her job is because they fought a customer at the coffee house. So now she feels they're responsible for her. So then it's like an adventure of this group of bandit men plus one nun and they're heading out to do a bandit job and the story takes a number of unexpected twists and turns and I really, really enjoyed it. Again, this is The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho.
1: Okay, those are our new picks for June 23rd and the 30th. What are you going to read next? Um, I'm going to read a book I think I mentioned last week, but
2: I think it might have come out recently, which is A Quick and Easy Guide to Sex and Disability.
1: And I just got my hands on a copy of The Mystery of Mrs. Christie by Marie Benedict, which comes out in January, which is her fictionalized imagining of Agatha Christie's 11 missing days, uh, which most people know that story. If you're an Agatha Christie fan, she famously went missing for uh, 11 days. She basically pulled a gone girl on her husband. Which is now a spoiler for Gone Girl. Sorry if you haven't read it. Um, But uh, she, you know, she was gone for 11 days. She claimed amnesia. She never talked about it again, Uh, you know, except like brushes over it in her memoir. And people have just always been like so fascinated with that story. It was not, in fact, giant wasps like they portrayed on Doctor Who. Sorry to ruin that for you. But it's, I'm just. I've read so many books about it and yet I will read another. Just like Jack the Ripper. Maybe we need a Jack the Ripper, Agatha Christie's Eleven Missing Days crossover. Maybe she was Jack <laughs> the Ripper. No, I don't think she was alive then. Just barely. Oh, I've hit on a fabulous idea. I'm gonna go write it all down. <laughs> go write it down. Yeah, so that's that's it for today. Thank you to our sponsors. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com if you want to let us know about your crossovers. You can find us online. Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at The Info File. I hang out on Instagram mostly at and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading.
2: Happy reading.